Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between in the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Sorcerer. Sebastian and I'm here with Troy. Hey. Welcome back to the podcast, Troy. Thanks. Good to be back. It's been a while. This episode, we are going to discuss Sorcerer, the 1977 film by William Friedkin. Now, if you're all excited that this film is going to actually feature a sorcerer in it, um, like I was hoping, that you're going to be disappointed because there's no sorcerers in Sorcerer, nor are there any swords of any kind or any sort of magic. So right off the bat, Sorcerer is sort of operating at a deficit. Now, this film is on tentpole trauma because it was an expensive for the time film. It ran way over budget and ended up costing around $22 million. And it was originally supposed to be like a little $2 million film, but then William Friedkin got carried away with it and ended up making his version of Fitzcarraldo or something, you might say. (laughs) But what really makes this film sort of famous, the famous story of why it did so poorly because it only made like five million dollars at the box office which was terrible for the time even but the story and this is very apocryphal but the story is that it did so poorly because of star wars like star wars came out and stole all of sorcerer's thunder and people just wanted to go see spaceships and laser beams and didn't want to see William Friedkin's serious political thriller. But I've sort of learned that that's not really entirely true. It's just a part of the story. The part of the story that sort of makes sense is I guess that Sorcerer, because it was a 20th Century Fox film or something. It was a a joint production. I think Universal and Fox. Right. Like two movie studios had to come together to make this giant bomb. So what happened was the trailers for Sorcerer were in front of Star Wars. And so people would see this political thriller trailer and then Star Wars would begin. So they'd forget all about... They'd forget all about Sorcerer. Okay. Which was coming out a whole month later. Like it's almost an entire month after Star Wars is out. 
And, you know, the story is that no one was going to see Sorcerer. They were all going to see Star Wars, which in those days makes a little bit of sense because movies didn't quite catch on as quickly as they do now. So Star Wars was probably really just picking up business at that point. But it's not like they came out the same weekend. No, which is kind of the story. But also, you know, Star Wars didn't just pummel Sorcerer. It kind of pummeled that whole genre of of 70s gritty realistic uh movies so sorcerer could have just been one more of these movies like taxi driver or or something that that was this kind of 70s really human human experience the depressing but once star wars hit and jaws actually kind of changed that a little bit too kind of a turning point where they were feel-good movies yeah, I do think that story does have some weight. Like Star Wars, really did take all the the wind out of the sails of Sorcerer. Also, what I what I read was uh, that Man's Chinese Theater, because I always thought that you know on this this story was that Star Wars opened up here and Sorcerer was like down the street two right. blocks. Exactly, that's always what I had heard, and and nobody was going to Sorcerer. But what actually happened was. Uh, Man's Chinese was running Star Wars, and you can see those famous photos of Star Wars on Man's Chinese Theater. And then it was done. Then they opened with Sorcerer at Man's Chinese Theater, and nobody came, and it ran for a week. And then they just put Star Wars back into it. We're putting the movie people want to see back on here. Right. So they just removed Sorcerer because it was uh, not making any money. And Star Wars famously kind of played for years, I think. Like, on its initial run, it just played for months and months and just kept playing, right? It played for a long time and then they brought it back like the next year. Like they okay. re-ran it again in 78. So it's kind of true. There's a lot of truth to that it opened up and Star. I mean, Friedkin has admitted that like, you know, Star Wars happened and it, and it really kind of killed it. But let's not forget... <laughs> That it's called Sorcerer, and there's no magic, there's nothing (laughs) supernatural. It took me, I think, three viewings of this film to fucking figure out where the Sorcerer was coming, the name was coming from. It's one of the trucks. It's one of the trucks, and we'll get into what the, the movie is about. But So there's these two trucks that are featured in the movie. Sorcerer is the name of one of those trucks. Yeah. But you never even see it. And I remember there's like a scene in the movie where they're they're fixing up these trucks and they're writing something, they're painting something, some words on the truck. And in the back of my memory, I always thought, oh, that's where the sorcerer was. They write the name on the side of the truck. But that's not the case. No. It's this scratched off make of the truck. When it was it came off the assembly line, it's a military vehicle or something. And it was the make of it was called Sorcerer. And you barely see it in like two shots if you're looking for it. And that truck doesn't even make it through to the end. And it's not even the hero truck. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's the other truck that makes it called Lazarus or something. Now, do you know, is there any other reason why Friedkin decided to call this Sorcerer? Yes. So originally the title was ball breaker Mm. and uh, i think one of the producers was like we're not doing that and so he actually was 
freaking out about what he was going to call this thing. He wanted to call it Ball Breaker. And then he was listening to a Miles Davis album called Sorcerer. And he thought that was a, a great name. So he was high. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, look, Sorcerer is a cool name. It just it's doesn't cool have name. anything to do with this movie. No, not not even remotely. So that does make a lot of sense. I think he just got attached to the idea of how it sounded. And it's not like other movies have had names that, that come out of nowhere like Gummo or, you know. It would be like if I made a fantasy movie, like a sword and sorcery movie, but called it like Ice Cream Social or something. <laughs> Just nothing to do with anything. Because it's the name of the vehicle that you don't even see. It'd be like if, if Thelma and Louise was called like Pontiac. Right. Or something. <laughs> or Honda. Well, we should say that this movie is sort of a remake of the film Wages of Fear by Henri Clouseau. Now, Friedkin claims that it's not really a remake because I guess they couldn't technically get the rights to remake the movie. So they went back to the book, which Wages of Fear is based on. But I've seen Wages of Fear. And other than the sort of first act that Friedkin tacks on where we get this backstory of these three different characters. It's virtually the same movie. Yeah. It deserves to be called a remake as much as any remake deserves to be called a remake. Yeah. But, but apparently Friedkin does not consider this a remake. Well, he's probably listening to this being very angry right now. <laughs> <laughs> but Sorcerer is one of those movies that I always remember it, like it took me so long to come around seeing this movie and it's, it's kind of had a rediscovery Within, I'd say, like the last 10 years, people have really sort of gravitated to to this and now consider this a, a classic. But I remember it being one of those movies on the video store shelves that was always there. And it was like there's a, a the poster is like some truck on a bridge and a guy on the bridge and it's raining. Even the poster, it was just like none of this is adding up for yeah. me as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Like it's there's a guy in it. He's like in a jungle. It's called Sorcerer. There's a truck like usually the poster has to give you enough information to sell you an idea. Yeah. There was no idea on that poster, but I always remembered it. It was just one of those ones where it's like, ah, I don't know. Like you just kept passing on it, you know, for the longest time. Was that how your experience was? I don't remember even really seeing it in video stores. And if I did, it just sort of washed right over me. I didn't see it until many years later. I think our mutual friend Jay got me to watch it. Like, I barely even knew about it. I think I just heard vaguely mentions of it here and there. But it, it was one of those movies that was never really full on my radar at all. And then, yeah, I think Jay Davis was like, have you ever seen Sorcerer? We should watch it. And we watched it. Okay. And then I watched it with you, too, again. Yeah. When you got the Blu-ray. That's in 2014 they released this on on blu-ray and i think i had tried to watch it before a couple of times i remembered seeing i'd seen clips of it i'd you know read interviews about it and, and i knew about it but I, I think it was when that blu-ray came out i was like i'm gonna do this and i like bought it and and i think yeah we watched it together and and i thought it was great so that i think that was like when i finally 
gave this my full 110% attention. I feel the same way. I have liked this movie since that viewing. And when I watched it again for this viewing, I liked it even more. So it kind of is one of those movies that I continue to enjoy more and more as time goes on. Same here. And it's one of those, one of those Friedkin productions that like on the first viewing, he did this like in, in The Exorcist. I'm trying to think of other movies where this it seems like there's this scope because it opens up. First, it starts in Veracruz, right? What he's doing is he's introducing you to our characters, but it almost feels more like a global connected political thing. Yeah. He's jumping and then he goes to France and then he goes to New Jersey and Israel. And I remember that washed over me the first time I saw it. And and then what I really remembered was once we get to the village where all these characters are, but that kind of like epic feel that he was trying to create was almost like too much information. I didn't quite get it the first time. And now on this viewing, I really appreciated that a lot more, even though I think it is over the top what he's doing it's way over the top and it's like a huge chunk of the movie really i mean it takes more than an hour before we even get to the trucks moving which is really what the movie's about right so you have more than half of the movie that's dedicated to setting up all these characters and he's definitely operating as you've sort of mentioned in exorcist mode it's sort of similar to exorcist in the way the exorcist opens up with father marin in, in Iraq. A- Iraq and you're yeah. like what is going on here isn't this about a little girl it's almost right. like he does the opposite of what all other filmmakers sort of do in the modern age which is start small and get big it's like he yeah. starts big and then he starts huge and then scales down boils it down to this one little thing that's happening the same way he does right. with exorcist where it all ends up in one little room here it's like you start on all these different parts of the world and then you end up in this one jungle you know sweating it out in these super tense sequences but i think with both those films it, it kind of took me a while in in my viewings over the course of my life watching these films with The Exorcist too. I always forget that it takes place in Iraq because then once you're into the story, you're sort of focused on the girl. The next time you watch it, you're like, oh yeah, this starts in Iraq for some fucking reason. Yep. And the same thing with this movie. It's like, oh my God, right. We're like jumping around the globe here. To, for me, it took a couple viewings to just appreciate what he was trying to do there, which simply, it will just kind of jump into the plot here. What he's doing is he's introducing you to four different characters who are shady characters, who are troubled, who have gotten in tricky political or illegal situations, and they have to flee the country or the situation where they're from. But he's doing it in a way that almost feels like a like a documentary totally about something else like a war going on or something first of all it it starts off with just this character shooting another character and you have no idea why so this character is called nilo and he's played by francisco rabal who's like a spanish actor and this guy was like you know really famous spanish actor but this was his first hollywood movie but the irony was 
you know, he thought he was going to go to Los Angeles and make a big Hollywood movie, but he ended up shooting like entirely in like the jungles of Guatemala. So he was pretty disappointed in the experience. And apparently the shoot for this was a nightmare as it obviously must be when you watch it. Famously production that was like from hell. But this character, all we see of him is that he shoots this other guy. We have no idea why. And then he shows up later in the movie and becomes sort of one of the four main characters after he murders another guy. So he's essentially just an assassin. And so that's that's yeah. all we're getting about him. And then we get this other guy who's part of these Palestinian terrorist organization. So yeah, then then we jump and there's a little title on the bottom of the screen. It says, now we're in Israel. So first we're in Veracruz and this guy shoots somebody. And you think, oh, this is a, maybe this is a spy movie. Right. Right. And then it jumps to Israel. And I'm thinking like James Bond or something like, Okay, now there was an assassination. Now this is connected somehow. Yeah. Now that we're in Israel. But nope. <laughs> like, nope. We're seeing some other totally different thing happening in Israel. So they bomb a, a bank and uh, they have to flee and the Israeli police are chasing them and, and this one guy escapes. And then the next segment we see is like pretty long. So we've had these sort of two short sort of action oriented sequences right yeah but now we're going to get this whole thing about this banker who's done some sort of shady deal he's going to be in trouble and he tries to get his partner's dad to like bail them out this one is bug nuts because <laughs> it goes on and on and on like it yeah. starts with him like just talking with his wife who's like an editor and she gives him a watch as a gift which is going right. to come back in the movie and who's the actress that plays her? Oh, man. My new crush, Anne-Marie Descott, who was married to Louis Maul for a little bit. I mean, she's got to be in her late 30s or early 40s here, but she's quite striking and beautiful. Um, and she's his wife. She gives him this watch. And then he tries to convince his partner to bail them out of this situation. And the partner is like nope and goes and shoots himself in his car while this guy is having dinner with his wife at this restaurant and so he just takes off on her now we jump to new jersey and the title on the bottom of the screen says now we're in new jersey after this we were just in france in paris and and this is the one that goes ape shit one of the members of this irish mob group is roy scheider of jaws fame speaking of jaws and you know, he's basically just the driver, but these guys are going into a church, a Catholic church, and robbing a poker game or something that's going on in the back of the church. During a wedding, which we see there's a wedding going on with a with the bride who has been beaten by her husband. She's got a black eye. Yes. Like everything about this is so completely over the top. So like it's this church with a with a wedding going on with a, a battered bride and then downstairs all the affiliated churches are getting together to count their donations but it seems like a poker room like right. it's extremely shady and obviously run by the mafia and so this group of, of irish mobsters breaks in and steals the money but in the process they shoot one of the priests who's there counting the money who happens to be we'll find out later uh, the brother of like a really high up uh, Italian mobster. But anyway, they're escaping in a car. And by the way, Roy Scheider has this 
prosthetic. Oh, is that a prosthetic? Yeah, this obvious prosthetic on the bridge of his nose that's making his glabella like stick way out past his eyes. Right. It's almost like he's a Dick Tracy character or something. Yeah. So he's wearing this kind of ridiculous nose prosthetic just so for the sake of like, so they can, when he gets hit in this car, they can take a chunk out of his nose to give it a more dramatic effect. I didn't catch that. Interesting. But like something happens in the car, like some of the guys start arguing and it distracts Roy Scheider who's driving and he crashes into a truck and it's one of the most gory crashes I've ever seen. Like these gangsters are like lying outside of the windows of the car and they're all just bloody. It looks like one of those driver's ed scare films where you see like car wrecks. Oh yeah. They're like head to toe covered in blood and, and they're leaving trails of blood on the pavement and they hit a fire hydrant and the water's like shooting up a hundred feet into the air. It almost looks like a bloody universal stunt show. And the car has like flipped over and then the, the cops come to like check it out. Roy Scheider's hobbling on his broken legs or whatever, trying to escape before they can find him. And then like one of the cops like looks at one of the bodies and starts taking some of the dollar bills that have scattered everywhere well you know times are tough in new jersey in the 1970s so anyways like roy scheider gets away and then he meets up with one of the other mobsters and they say like did did you know whose church that was they're gonna come after you so he he tells he says i've set you up with a uh a plane ticket i don't even know where it goes i don't want to know i don't want to know you anymore because there's a now there's a, a contract on your, your life. So all of this has been done to set the stage that we're going to have these four characters, the French banker, this Irish mobster, this Palestinian terrorist, and this mysterious Mexican assassin. They're all going to end up in this Colombian town is it Veracruz that they end up in or that's just where it starts they never say what this place is what country it is they never it's just supposed to be a South American village somewhere in a, like a banana republic but they're, they're very specific about not telling you what this place is according to Wikipedia it's called poor veneer and it's in Colombia I read a review from the 70s that somebody th thought it was in Chile. So I, who knows? All of this information is given to you with very little explanation. Like there's never really a moment in this movie where things are laid out in a really kind of hand-holding kind of way. I mean, you no. pick it up, and I appreciate that about the movie. Like, there's never any big chunks of exposition. But it's done to such an extreme that it's so subtle about giving you any information at all that like i appreciate that too but sometimes that can be a little tough it doesn't help its commercial no prospects especially when it's called sorcerer i think what it is is that like friedkin pulled this off with the exorcist yeah and he's trying to do it again 
and he just doesn't have a simple enough story to hang it on the way the yeah. exorcist worked like the exorcist had these sort of subtleties it didn't come and spell everything out like people think the exorcist is this movie where it's like this is the devil possessing a girl blah blah, blah. it's not like a movie would be now No, it was pretty vague and and like you said it started in iraq then then you're on a film shoot in georgetown the the mother's like an actress and there's like a story going on with Father Karras that you don't really understand. Yeah. His mom's dying. He, you're right. He does this in The Exorcist and it works. And it kind of leads you into this central story eventually. But he does it in Sorcerer. I think that was his intention, but you feel completely displaced, which is what these characters are going through. It's working in a way, but I can see why... People at the time just couldn't really hang with this. And I mean, the reviews were bad. Like, they yeah. did not get good reviews. It's been reappraised, but at the time, people were like, ugh, this movie's just too much. And just to, to remind everybody, both The French Connection and The Exorcist were mega hits. Right. So Friedkin, at this point, thought he could do anything he wanted to. Yeah. He was basically on track to be Steven Spielberg. Jaws had just come out. In fact, Roy Scheider was in French Connection. Yep. Right? So when he did Exorcist, Roy Scheider wanted to be Father Karras and, and Friedkin told him no. And so they actually had their relationship was hurt a little bit. Oh. But then Scheider was in Jaws and became a mega actor. And so Friedkin kind of did a 180 and said, oh, okay, actually, you can be in my new movie. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, they had a, a bit of a falling in and out with their relationship. But doesn't Friedkin have that with everybody he ever works with? Yeah. So Friedkin is notoriously difficult. He's arrogant. And he admits this, too. And he tortures his actors. I yeah. mean, everybody talks about what a horrible time they had, even on The Exorcist. I mean, he was freezing them in this, like, refrigerator room <laughs> right. just to make it look like right. it was cold. It was not a fun shoot. By the time he's on Sorcerer, though, he, he's got this hubris that he just has decided that he's going to make the biggest movie that the American film industry has ever made. This is going to be the one that's going to be like Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Zhivago. Like this is going to be one of the biggest American classics. And he's setting out to do this. That's always a recipe for falling short of expectations. Like yeah. when you think that, and it always seems like the act of hubris for directors is either making some epic on the water or going into the jungle. Coppola went into the jungle yeah. Friedkin went into the jungle. Werner Herzog went into the jungle. Richard Stanley. Right, yeah. Like, if you go into the jungle, you're asking for trouble. Just like if you make a movie all on water, you're asking for trouble. Like, the jungle is not a hospitable environment to make movies on. Unless you're no. shooting in Hawaii. It's just hard. And, you know, of course... Friedkin wants verisimilitude, you know, so I'm, they were all in awful places. Let's talk a little bit about this village where they all end up oh, in. Oh, man. It is like the worst. It is just hell. It is just the worst, grossest place. And he exploits, he, he kind of does this in a lot of his movies where he 
he exploits the locals. Like he'll go around in documentary style and like pick up shots of people with missing teeth and, you know, bloody sores on their arms. That seems very real. You know, like in The Exorcist, there was like a shot of a guy with like a glazed over milky eye in Iraq and stuff. That's kind of like one of his techniques. But yeah, he this village is essentially trash that's been put together to make shelters and in the mud in the jungle and and people are are living in absolute poverty there seems to be running water but that's about it i don't know if there is really i mean there's rain all the time but it's also super hot like everybody looks just sweaty as hell they look like they're dying yeah and it's just like they're dirty and sweaty and just drinking booze in this shitty bar. <laughs> Roy Scheider's, he's living in this communal, not even housing. It's just a, another shack with cots and bunks with like 10 other people. And yeah, there's this cantina that has like an actual facade that, you know, that's it's built on a foundation, on a cement foundation. It seems like an actual building. And it's where everybody goes and hangs out. And it's sort of the the one person running it is this Nazi that's in hiding. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's going under aliases. So this this ex-Nazi is called Carlos. Yeah, they all have Hispanic or Mexican right. or, or they all have South American aliases. And so Carlos, the the ex-Nazi, is making people sandwiches and, and serving whiskey to these people. And so you'd think, okay, here we are. Here's our setup. We're going to get moving with the action. But no, we get this whole thing where the people in this town, including Roy Scheider and the French guy, Cremier, I believe his name is, and um, the other characters, they're all working on this oil rig for this American oil company. And then what happens is because this American oil company is like cutting corners or whatever, there's this massive explosion. So like a bunch of people get killed, including like people from this town or whatever. And there's this whole scene where they come back with a truck with like all the burned bodies. bodies, And some of the bodies are so burnt. They're just like literally crisped and they're like wrapped in plastic and they're just handing these crisp bodies back to the people and and then they revolt and and they burn the truck that the the bodies were delivered on so there's a a small scene where it's just a revolt you still have no idea really what this film is about by the way at this point right i couldn't really understand even on this viewing i was like what is going on here i mean eventually i sort of pieced it together i'm like oh everybody has to work this shitty job for this oil company and they're negligent and they have something to do with the Banana Republic government. Like people are mad about whoever the dictator is, who we don't ever see, but we just see like, you know, posters of him. Right. I'm assuming he's involved somehow, but I couldn't really even tell from the movie. People are unhappy with this situation as yeah. people would be, and they're revolting and everything. And so the oil company's got to do something about it. The representative for the oil company is this guy, Corlett, who's played by an actor, Raymond Bieri, who seemed familiar, like I'd seen him in other things. 
So he's got to figure out how to get everybody back to work because what's happened is after this explosion, now there's just this fireball that's constantly gouting out of this like hole in the ground. Right. So I think the the way these things work, I, I don't really understand how oil wells work, but it's like once it's lit and oil is spouting up into the air, there's no way to put out the flames unless you like snuff it out with a giant push of air or explosion. It'd be like... It'd be like if your pilot light is on on your stove, it takes like a huge breath to blow out the flame. And so to shut this thing down, they're going to have to blow up a ton of dynamite. But the only dynamite they have access to are these few crates of dynamite that are all old and they're leaking like literally into the boxes. The nitroglycerin in the dynamite has become like liquid, which means it's incredibly volatile and will explode just like if it's nudged too much. And this guy tries to get a helicopter pilot to fly it over there. And I do love the scene with the helicopter pilot. He's like, dude, no way. I'm not, nobody's going to do this. He's like, the turbulence alone is going to make it explode. And he's like, what if I double your pay? And the guy's, yeah, like double (laughs) your pay if you explode isn't worth it. This is the central conundrum of the movie. This is the thing that needs to be solved. So they need to get this unstable nitroglycerin 200 miles over to where the the oil well is on fire. Right. And at this point, we're more than halfway through the movie. Right. So he goes through the village and basically on a megaphone is just blurting out, who wants to sign up for a suicide mission? Yeah. (laughs) And it's, you know, you'll make more money than you've ever seen. And at this point, our characters, we've spent enough time with them to know that even though they have escaped out of the countries where they were in immediate danger, this is hell for them. They have been here long enough to know that they're they're trapped. They'll never make enough money. They're stuck here forever. And they're they're already in trouble with their scenes where they're in trouble with the local police yeah. who are corrupt and just taking just siphoning their wages off of them. And so they they understand that these these four characters that we have been introduced to are now trapped here for the rest of their lives. And there's even a great scene where uh, Roy Scheider is helping unload the plane that flies in. And I don't know if you caught, that was actually Joe Spinell. I did catch that. The pilot of the plane. He's well, like, he also comes back. He's one of the people they test out to drive and they don't take him. Oh, okay. I missed that. Okay. Joe Spinell's like, because he sees Roy Scheider looking around at the empty seats on the plane. He's like, don't even think about it. It's going to be three years without eating for you to save up enough money to get a seat just to get on the plane and get to the next shithole. You really get the sense that this is the worst situation you could possibly end up in. It's a bad, bad scene. And yeah, and so to get out of it, these guys are all jockeying for position to drive one of these two trucks 200 miles through jungle terrain to get to where the geyser of fire is, the oil fire, and... You know, they only really need, I guess, one crate of this nitroglycerin. Yeah. It's so, the dynamite is so volatile that they could knock out the fire with just one crate. And they have a bunch of crates, but they know that most of them aren't going to get through. And so they literally have two trucks, knowing that probably one truck will definitely not make it. <laughs> and there's going to be two people per truck. So at least two guys are expected to die for sure. Right. The odds are, st- are stacked that 
it they know that one of these trucks is going down. Right. And the French character actually uses that to negotiate a better salary for them. He's like, one of us is just basically a backup. So you need to pay us more. That actor who uh, is playing that character, his name is Bruno um, Cremer. He's a famous French actor. He's got such a like great face and yeah, he's like one of those does. like French actors who you can see like he was probably something of a sex symbol maybe at the time but like by our modern standards he's not really that handsome you know what I mean Well he's a 70 he's got that 70s heavy look to him but yeah he's got these striking blue eyes he kind of looks like a older Daniel Craig to me Yeah a little bit yeah So you could yeah you could see how he was you know when he was younger, he was probably this this handsome heartthrob and is now becoming more of a heavy. Of all the four characters, you've got, of course, Roy Scheider, who's sort of your, like, salt-of-the-earth, sort of everyman kind of guy. He's playing it pretty tamped down low. I mean, he doesn't really do a whole lot in the movie other than sort of react to things in a very Roy Scheidery way. And that's yeah. not to say he's not great. He's great. He's doing exactly what he needs to do. But he's not taking the lead. No. And so this Bruno Cremer is kind of like, in a way, I feel like he's the more relatable character because he's got like a wife at home that he wishes he could get back to. He's written this letter to her and he's carrying around the watch, which is like, a you know, Uh, something engraved in it that's meaningful to him. And so, you know, he's still got some sort of emotional connection to home. So I feel like he's the character in a way we're supposed to sympathize with the most. I don't know. I I always, I was thinking that watching it this time around too, like who is our hero and who are we really relating to here? He's like, you think it's Roy Scheider. You're supposed to be relating to Roy Scheider. Right. I read something where they were like, we cast Roy Scheider because, you know, the audience can project themselves onto him. He's sort of like a blank slate type of character. But I don't think it really works. Yeah. And also, like, these people are all hardened criminals. Like you said, the French actor, like his situation seems a little bit more like he got caught up into this mess unintentionally and made bad mistakes, but Eh, it seems like he's an embezzler. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I did read that they intentionally wanted all these people to be pretty unlikable, unsavory characters. Well, I mean, the Mexican assassin is a straight up killer, so we don't really sympathize with him. The terrorist is a terrorist, so we don't right. really sympathize with him unless you really feel for the Palestinian movement or something. Roy Scheider's a mobster. Roy Scheider's a gangster. Yeah. And uh, the French guy's an embezzler. So, yeah, they're all bad people. No one's really here to be liked that much. But this is the 70s. This is the sort of thing that was common in 70s films. And this is the sort of thing that a lot of people really love about 70s movies. Yeah. And this is the sort of thing that Star Wars destroyed. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So after they kind of auditioned their driver, they got the four guys that we've been following. They're the ones who made the cut to be the drivers. And then the next scene is they got to figure out what they're driving. Well, are you including the audition? Because they got, they pick four guys, but then the assassin goes and kills one of the (laughs) four guys because the old Nazi gets picked as one of the drivers. And then the assassin goes and shoots him. It it wasn't the, the old Nazi. It was some other guy. guy? Yeah. But, but you're right. Like the, the assassin didn't make the cut 
and was all bitter about it because he went, you know, they're getting paid like $20,000 each or something, which the, nobody's ever seen in this village. It's unimaginable amount of money they're going to make. And so he assassinates one of the drivers that, that made the cut in a last minute effort to become one of the drivers. I like that they just give it to him after that. They're like, all right, well, I guess you can do it then. I mean, I guess the thinking was he'd just kill whoever else would get right. the, the gig. But the, So the next bit of casting is now th- going to be the trucks themselves, which seems like a major player, another, you, you might say like a char- two more characters in this film, considering that one of them is the name of the movie. Yeah. So they have to find their trucks. They go to a junkyard and they're basically picking out the the two trucks that they can find that might run a little bit. And then they have to kind of scrap and weld and, and piece and, and do all these mechanics to, to piece these things together themselves to get these in, in proper working condition. This scene's actually really great. It's a great montage. There's a lot of cool camera work of them like working on it. And this is where we haven't mentioned it yet, but the soundtrack to the film tangerine dream which i love one of your favorite bands yeah i've seen them twice in concert nice you're a real dream head you get a nice uh montage with a with a pretty good tangerine dream score here i really do like the score of this movie a lot it's really cool i thought it was a nino morricone at first but it's not so apparently i think this is the film that this is their first score friedkin saw them in a concert in germany and was really taken by them. And so this kind of brought them into the film world, which they later became even more famous for doing soundtracks. This might be my favorite soundtrack of theirs. Like, I like this more than Legend or whatever. I don't know. It, it's a good one. Mine is Firestarter. Firestarter is pretty good. I think I like this better. I really like this soundtrack. I'm going to listen to it. It's a great soundtrack. It's it's very ominous. It's definitely 70s Tangerine Dream because they kind of got a little more new agey later yeah. and they, they kind of had like a, a tempo and a sequencer kind of feel that, that was dominant in their later soundtracks. But this had a lot of like Mellotron in it and, yeah. and just heavy atmospheric noises and stuff it's a good score that's what i like about it it's got the 70s sounds going and i like those better than the 80s sounds so these two trucks with four drivers take off on their adventure their fun adventure into the jungle finally more than halfway through the movie i do (laughs) want to mention though the scene that i found really amusing is like right when they're starting off they're sort of like heading off into the jungle and they pass by these like natives who've sort of wandered out of the jungle and this one guy who's like you know literally wearing nothing but like a grass loincloth or whatever is like chasing after the truck and being all funny about it and like yeah. hiding behind the mirrors and like popping his head out and they're like in Roy Scheider's like get out of here and he's like <laughs> trying to shoo the guy away yeah There's, what's so great is because you know he set up this tension so well this native guy doesn't know they're carrying like, you know, all these explosives and he's just fucking with them. And you're like, Jesus, man, get the hell out of here. <laughs> because, yeah, literally they're trying to not jostle their cargo yeah. around too much because if they do, it'll explode. They're, these are there's like three crates each in the back of these trucks and they're on a bed of sand. So they've built like a bed, you know, maybe like a foot of soft dirt 
that these old crates are sitting on top of. So they've got a little bit of a shock absorber, but not much. Yeah. And I mean, the rest of the movie is really just an exercise in tension where we're going from horrible jungle scenario to another horrible jungle scenario that they've got to overcome. They're basically just a series of tests. Like, are they going to make it through this? Are they going to make it through that? And they're super, super tense. And I mean, I'm a huge fan of jungle adventure movies anyway so i mean i love this stuff but the stuff that he comes up with is so great because they're the sort of things that are like like if you were on foot or you were just kind of hiking through the jungle these would all be you know a little bit touch and go situations but you could probably navigate them but because you're dealing with these big rusty trucks full of nitroglycerin they're like horrific things to navigate it should be said like they built these trucks out of different parts and stuff but this isn't mad max fury road like these trucks still look like shit there's like holes in them and like you know roy scheider has written in chalk like how many miles he has to go i don't even think they have a gas gauge like a proper gas gauge on them So one of them has a missing headlight. I was kind of wondering that while the whole time I'm like, how much gas do they have? Because there's no gas stations in the jungle. Like, I hope their tanks have enough to go 200 miles in those like (laughs) gas guzzlers. And they've got to go through 200 miles of like the roughest terrain imaginable. I mean, up hills. Yeah, they're going along these sort of cliffs that are almost just falling away, like underneath the tires. The first thing they come to is this sort of like small bridge of planks. And as soon as the truck like gets onto the wooden planks, it's breaking through them. And the guy's got to like shift gears and somehow get out of these holes in the thing. I mean, while one guy guides him. And it's really just nerve wracking in a really good way. I mean, the tension he creates is incredible. I think this is essentially what the the previous movie, Wages of Fear, was nothing but this, right? It didn't have the whole yes. introduction. It was essentially just a thriller about trying to transport this dynamite. Right. And the title Wages of Fear makes sense because these are their wages that they're making to do this terrible job. Now, I made the suggestion last night that they should have called this movie Shares of Scares because, (laughs) you know, they're all making shares in this venture, but it's very scary. I think that would have been a better title than Sorcerer. And I think if people saw that, Man's Chinese Theater would have kept Shares of Scares for (laughs) a full two months. Star Wars would have been destroyed by (laughs) Shares of Scares. I mean, I also think Ball Breaker is a perfectly good title. Ball Breaker was kind of awesome. Yeah. They kind of come to a, there's a fork in the road and they, they reach this one section where the arrow that tells them which way to go has fallen down. Right. And so now they're, they don't even know if they're on the right path. So they have to make a guess. This was a little confusing to me because like they stop the trucks and they're trying to decide which way to go. And like Roy Scheider picks one direction, but then the French guy like comes up to his truck and is like, no, no, that's the wrong way. We need to go this other way. Yeah. And it's never really explained whether or not he was right or wrong, because then Roy Scheider arrives first at this rope bridge. This isn't just like a wood bridge made of planks. This is now a fucking rope bridge with some wood on it. The kind of thing that looks like you could never, ever ride a truck over. It doesn't look like you could walk across safely, (laughs) let alone take a giant truck 
across. And it's like pouring rain, like tropical storm on them as, you know, both of these trucks, one after the other, have to like navigate over this rope bridge. And like when Roy Scheider arrives at the bridge, he's like, we went the wrong way. Right. And I don't know if he really did. Does that mean that once they got past the rope bridge, they had to go around and keep going or something? Yeah, I don't I don't know. But it, it does give this sense of desperation, which I kind of see why it's like, I don't we don't know if we're on the right path. We've gone the wrong way. That's never really re- resolved, but it, it does give it a sense of just complete desperation like this mission just is getting worse and worse yeah every 10 miles it just gets worse and worse so but i have a a couple of things to say about this this is basically like the poster selling point of this movie is this scene yes this is your action sequence that friedkin was hoping was going to make this movie a blockbuster it's basically all kind of put on this one scene this scene alone cost $3 million wow. ultimately just for this scene. They had to scout a location. So what the idea is that both these trucks are going to have to carefully drive across this with it's breaking apart and planks are falling and there's rain coming down. And, and it's over a raging river. It's a giant raging river. And the trucks, you're seeing them like sway back and forth like they're almost going to fall over into the river. And so... They found a a location and they started building this bridge. And I think just to to construct the bridge cost like a million dollars. And this is 1977. So a million dollars in 1977 just to build this thing with hydraulics so they could get these trucks to like sway back and forth and not capsize. And it looks amazing. Like when you finally see it, it totally delivers. Like this scene is awesome. And it's really two scenes because you get this twice. Yeah, with two trucks. But so as they were building this bridge, the river that the the location that they chose slowly started drying up and they were getting a little concerned about it. But they, you know, it took like a month or something to build this bridge. And then by the time that it just kept getting smaller and smaller and the, the depth of the river got lower and lower. And by the time they completed the bridge, the river had completely dried up and there wasn't a river anymore. Wow. And so they had to go stop production completely and spend another month looking for another location. And they think they finally moved production to Mexico, disassembled the bridge, rebuilt it in Mexico. And as they started building that, that river started drying up. Wow. And so they rushed production. And one of the reasons there's so much rain in that scene, because it's all movie production rain that they're pouring on top of this, right? is because the, the, the level of that river was already starting to get lower. So they didn't want to show how shallow the, that river had gotten. Huh. And they even had to build by taking like giant pipes and pump systems 
to divert other sections of the river to bring more water to their location. Wow. And it put them back like three months, I think, in, in production or something like that. It pushed it over budget. And apparently in this new location, the people in this village knew he was the man who created the exorcist. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and they all kind of fleed the village. Right. <laughs> That's according to him, though. I think he like likes to make this lore about his his mystique and his his history. But according to Friedkin, like he really freaked out this village because he was the director of The Exorcist. Good story, even if it's not true. So yeah, I mean, we get these two scenes of these guys crossing this bridge. And I mean, one guy has to go out, out on the bridge, which has like holes all over it. The truck wheels are literally just kind of rolling along these like thin planks and the truck is swaying back and forth and one guy's trying to direct... So Roy Scheider and the assassin get through, you know, it's really harrowing. And then we do see the French guy and his co-driver going over it. And it's even worse. Like at one point, like this tree comes flying down the river and like pins him to the side of the truck. <laughs> and he almost runs over the terrorist who's trying to direct him over the bridge. It's just super tense and it's super great. Yeah, and like Roy Scheider has had to sort of threaten the assassin to go out and be in front of the truck. He like holds a gun at him and makes him do it. Once they get past this, like immediately one truck gets past this bridge. The other people haven't even started it, the one behind them. And Roy Scheider thinks that just because he made it, he's just assuming the other truck, there's no way that the other truck can make it after they've already gone across this bridge and essentially destroyed most of the wood that was already on it just by getting across it. Yeah. He's kind of like yelling and screaming and all giddy like, oh my God, our shares just doubled because there's no way the other truck's going to make it. Like two shares each. Yeah. And then even before the other truck begins to start going across the bridge, Roy Scheider and the, the Mexican assassin arrive just down the road to a section of the road where a, an enormous tree has fallen and just completely blocked their path. So they're there, and the other truck is just starting to repeat the adventure on the bridge and go through that all over again. This is what we call the lowest point in the story. This is where our heroes have reached like what seems to be the lowest moment. Because this tree is like massive, and there's no way to really get around it. Like Roy Scheider pulls out a machete and tries to like hack a path around it, but it's totally an exercise in futility. When he was doing that, this is what I would do in a situation like that. Like I can re- totally relate to that experience. Like just pull out a machete and just ha- start hacking brute force. Like everybody else is standing around shaking their heads and they know they're fucked, but he's like, get a machete. What are you guys standing around for? And he's just like whacking at trees. <laughs> I do love this whole sequence, but as soon as it happened, I'm thinking, just use the dynamite to blow up the tree. Like, really? They do come to this conclusion eventually, but that was like the first thing I would have thought. I mean, yeah, it's how are you going to do it? Like, it's going to be a tough thing to rig up. And the terrorist ends up being the one to do it because he has experience with bombs because that's what he's been doing before. And so he rigs this really like cool Rube Goldbergian contraption that's got, you know, like he's placing sticks in a teepee and he's hanging a rock from a rope or whatever. And then he 
makes the uh, assassin pull out his pockets. And I'm like, why is he asking him to pull out his pockets? Like while he's assembling this thing, like we're not really getting any of like the details of what he's trying to do. So you're like, what is going on? Why is he asking for these different things? Why does he need this? Why does he need that? But then we find out like the pocket that he takes from the assassin is going to be filled with sand. He needed a bag. A bag. And so that's going to be like the timer that's like the sand is going to run out of this bag. And then once it runs out, the rope is going to go and the rock is going to drop. And then the dynamite's going to explode. And like they've got to take their trucks and like back the far the fuck away from this right. thing. <laughs> because like the explosion will just make all the dynamite they still have explode. The guy who sets it all up has to run away and duck behind some trees and stuff. It's really well done. I really love this scene. Yeah, and it, and it comes immediately after the bridge scene. And that's kind of like the final big thing that they have to overcome. Yeah. But then what happens is, you know, so they're, they're driving along. They've still got a ways to go. And the French guy and... His co-driver, the terrorist, have this conversation that just lets you know they're going to die. (laughs) It's because it's the one moment where they actually just relax a little bit and start talking like about their families and stuff. And they nobody's done this, even when they're in the cantina. Like we've never had a moment where these characters take a break. Yeah. And just ask like, so what, what was it? You lived in Paris? Oh, I like Paris. Is that not? Yeah, I have a wife there. Like, you, you're right. It's like, where's this dialogue coming from? Oh, we're going to die. He takes out the watch that has the engraving on it. And, you know, at one point earlier in the movie, he tried to sell the watch, but that couldn't even get him out of this mess. And he's given the oil guy a note to send home to his wife if he doesn't make it and all that. So it's really broadcasting that this is that he's going to die. It is pretty great, though, because they're just driving along and they're having this conversation and all of a sudden his tire goes out and then they go down this ravine and explode. The end. That's it for those guys. I mean, it happens like really quick, but it's one of those sort of like intense moments where, you know, something horrible happens, but that's it. It's all over. It's like they barely even have time to react. Like, I think you see just like really quick shots of their faces and then boom, the whole thing goes up. Yeah. And so we learned that this uh, tire popping actually was a trap that was set by uh, bandits. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because then they have the scene where uh, Roy Scheider and the assassin stop to sort of like look at the wreckage that's kind of come down the hill. And yeah, these bandits come out and attempt to rob them. It's almost like a, you know, bandits stopping a, a train by, you know, piling sticks on top of the tracks it's it's that scene exactly right right the mexican assassin we don't know if he's really sick he's acting sick like they say get out of the truck get out of the truck and roy scheider gets out of the truck but the assassin is still in the truck coughing acting like he's too sick to move you know that he's waiting for because he's the only character that has a gun yeah so we've seen him pull his gun out on people numerous times in the movie so you kind of get the sense that He's holding back, waiting to draw his pistol on these people. And he gets his moment when um, one of the guys goes around back to open up the, the curtain behind the where the dynamite is in the back. And then this guy starts firing off his pistol and he 
He managed to, to shoot down like three of them before getting shot himself. Because the guys think that the truck has got like food or guns or something right. in it. They don't realize it's just a truck full of highly volatile dynamite. They think they're getting some big score. And the whole time they're sort of talking to each other in Spanish, which, you know, Roy Scheider doesn't understand. But they're clearly saying like just get them out into the road and we'll shoot them both. Like, yeah. like they're dead if they don't do something. And I think yeah. we're to understand that because the Mexican assassin can understand what they're saying, he knows they have to do something or they're dead. They're going to just right. kill them. So he shoots a bunch of them and Roy Scheider like clubs one guy with like a wrench or something. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. But yeah, the Mexican assassin gets shot and he's going to basically bleed out and die. And what the movie tries to do here. Well, I, I love this next setting that they go to. Well, the setting's cool, but like what they're trying to do with the movie is like, okay, so this one character is dying and like Roy Scheider's trying to like keep his spirits up by like, we're going to go get like the best whores we can buy. Right. He's trying to t talk him through this, like hang in there, hang in there, buddy. What are you going to do with all this money? What are you going to do with all this money? Oh, and by the way, we should mention that the previous truck that the bandits popped the tire and it went over and exploded. That was Sorcerer. Right. Sorcerer is gone. Yeah. No more Sorcerer. <laughs> so if you were here for the sorcery. At this point, it's Roy Scheider in a truck called Lazaro. Maybe they should have called it Lazaro. But I mean, <laughs> the truck's not even really going to make it to the end. No. So they end up in this weird sort of psychedelic landscape that looks like the moon or something. Yeah. They found this location in New Mexico. It's the Bistie Badlands. And it's intentionally completely not the jungle. Right. It's supposed to be as if now Roy Scheider's is moved to another plane of existence almost because this other character's dying. He hears almost like his ghost is laughing at him. We hear all these sound effects of this the assassin's laughter. And it's almost it's it's really psychedelic. I'm not sure exactly how to describe well i think it's just supposed to be that he's going kind of crazy yeah but this is it's a desert landscape so we've gone from jungle to barren landscape with these stones that look like mushrooms and there's no life it's just it's just rock it looks like he's on another planet yeah and it's nighttime and like the photography is really cool because this landscape is all sort of bathed in this like purplish light and the sky is kind of purpley. It's really neat. And there's this, they keep shooting through the reflection of the windshield. So like the landscape is superimposed over Roy Scheider as he's kind of losing his mind. And then there's these awesome, this is one of my favorite parts of this, this sequence is they do these freeze frames with like superimposed lightning strikes in the, in the background and they bloom the, the lightning on his frozen image and have this thunder noise on top of it. So you get these like frozen flash frames of lightning striking. It's kind of that moment that we come to in a lot of 70s movies where things get kind of trippy. Yeah. <laughs> it's great though. It is trippy. It's it's totally trippy. It completely delivers. They did a lot of drugs back in the 70s yeah. and they liked to express their enjoyment of 
drugs through uh, art. And so, yeah, that's what we get here. It doesn't make any real sense in the context of the story that he would be suddenly driving through this desert landscape, but it is cool. It does work. I feel like it's maybe the one scene that actually lives up to the title. Yeah, good point. You know, the title doesn't make any sense. Neither does this scene but the two of those seem to work together here. So what happens is the truck dies and the assassin die basically at the same time. Roy Scheider just sort of drags the assassin out into this landscape and leaves him there. And then he gets back in the truck and it's dead. It isn't going to start. And he's got two miles to go. He's written down the mileage that he needs to go on his dashboard and chalk. And he's short, two miles. So he just takes a case of this dynamite and wanders the last two miles carrying it in this sort of dazed, crazed state. And he he makes it. He delivers the case of dynamite to the site. Because this is a 70s movie, we've got to have ourselves a downer ending. Yeah. So Roy Scheider... Completes the job. He's the only survivor. So he gets all the shares of scares. So we're back in the cantina and he's talking with the the oil baron and he's writing him a check and they're talking about how he's going to actually cash it, which is complicated. But then he's saying, what are you going to do now? And he's, you know, talking about, you know, what's next for him. And they almost seem like they're, he has like this respect for him. He maybe wants to hire him. He's like, maybe I got another driving job for you. Right. (laughs) But anyways, it, it looks like all things are, are coming up roses for Roy Scheider now. And there's even a moment where he says, hey, can you hold the plane for a minute? And he goes over to this woman that we've seen in the background of the film who seems like, I wouldn't call her a hooker, but she seems, she's been friendly to the people and right. the men here. She's just has given companionship, I'd say, to these people, these guys who are desperately lonely and she looks pretty rough like she's missing teeth and she's you know she's older and just looking rough but he asks her to dance so we get this like you know nice moment where you know he's got new clothes on he's got like a nice new hat and he asks her to dance and it seems like everything's gonna be fine for him except outside the cantina a taxi arrives and out of the taxi are the mobster that got him out of town and the mobster that's after him. So like that guy ended up ratting him out and coming along for the job. And they walk into the cantina where we're sort of pulling away like on a, like crane shot and they walk into the cantina and you just hear a single gunshot, single gunshot cut to the title sorcerer with a tangerine dream score. So yeah, Roy Scheider, there's no, uh, guessing uh, that he is alive or dead. He's dead. Yeah, this isn't the end of The Sopranos where you there, you might have a little bit of leeway there. Like, nope, he's dead. They came, yeah. they found him, and they shot him. You heard the gunshot. He never even got that money. So, Troy, why do you think this failed? <laughs> let's get, let's rewind just for a second, just to, just to hit some of the, the high points. It's called Sorcerer. Okay. There's no sorcerers in it. There's no sorcerer. The poster is a truck on a bridge. It's gritty. It, it takes 45 minutes to get to 
understand what the movie's about. And it should be said that the movie's not long. It's two hours. So it's just weirdly unbalanced in that way where, you know, it's mostly set up then, you know, 40 minutes of action or whatever. Which to me seems like the studio's fault for not marketing this. Like it seems actually if you just boil it down to what the, the action is, it seems like it wasn't or couldn't have been that hard to sell a jungle adventure where they're transporting dynamite. Yeah. And like you said, it, it should have been called Scares for Shares or Ball Breaker. <laughs> scares for Shares is also good. I was saying Shares of Scares, but I think you may have landed on the better title. I'm glad we've workshopped this. Yeah, but it wasn't. Like, I think it was part of Friedkin's idea that this was going to be so mysterious. You were going to be brought slowly into this world and nobody's going to hold your hand and you don't know what's going on and you are as confused and displaced as the characters that are in this movie that nobody knew what this movie was and there's a movie about a hero boy farmer who goes in outer space and saves a princess down the street with awesome special effects i mean you could say that okay we're reaching the end of a certain sort of era of cinema and this is one of those movies that just kind of was still going in one direction when we had started to move in another direction which is all very like exemplified by this movie star wars coming out but it should be said that you know we're gonna get the deer hunter in 1978 we're gonna get apocalypse now movies that touched upon some of this like landscape anyway and did really well i mean i think there was still like gritty dramas being made but i think this one there was a little bit more working against it like you said the title it just didn't sell itself the right way you know it needed to sell itself as like these men are transporting this dynamite like you know and also i think it doesn't really help necessarily that all of the characters are criminals so we're nearing this this window now of of you said this this era is coming to an end and i think this was the beginning of that. And, and yeah, there's more gritty movies that, that came out and were made. But the other component of this story is that this was a humongous budget yep. by two major studios. It was an end of a certain type of filmmaking, but it was also the end of studios backing this because they took a, such a huge loss on this. Yeah. You know, so when you have one movie, a space opera that is not the money that's coming in isn't even stopping like it's just continuing to go and go and there's a sequel in the works which cost half the budget of this movie right that space opera is 11 million dollars compared to 22 million dollars for sorcerer so it's not just that a a audience's tastes were waning for this type of movie but studios were clearly seeing that financially this wasn't it, it was an end to these types of movies it had clearly shifted where the money was. Right. And the filmmakers were getting more and more extravagant with what they were yeah. doing. Like they were <laughs> like, we can do anything. Let's just pour millions of millions of dollars into this. I mean, in the case of Apocalypse Now, which had a very similar production, yeah. it paid off because that movie did really well. But, you know, that movie had more going for it. It was this epic Vietnam story, you know, whereas this is yeah. like... 
what is this really? Like, how is this tying into what's going on in the culture? I mean, it did have politics in it, but I don't think any of whatever the political statements that are being made were strong enough to be a selling point. Yeah. And so everything about Sorcerer is just kind of miserable. Yeah. It's it's a great action movie and the action stuff, I wouldn't say action, I would say suspense. Most of the movie, like that doesn't even happen until after the halfway point. So yeah, a lot of it is just a character study on these criminals who are fleeing the country and living in a miserable village. And it's $22 million worth of that. You know, to keep comparing it to Apocalypse Now, I mean, what Apocalypse Now has going for it is spectacle and excitement and like performances by these big name actors and it's got a lot of bang for its buck, whereas this yeah, it's huge. feels small and it's just weirdly overambitious yet not ambitious enough at the same time. Like if you're going to make an epic, make an epic, but this is kind of like a sort of epic, like we're going to start big, but then bring it down small and end up making it just about a crummy guy in a crummy place. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> That's really kind of what it's about. It's a movie about a crummy guy in a crummy place. That's perfect. And then, yeah, I guess Heaven's Gate, that really capped off this era. I think that was another huge production, tens of millions of dollars. And it was just it was just a somber film about life on the prairie during the or the Dust Bowl. Yeah. You know, depressing and. Clearly, studios were done shelling out money for these movies. And, you know, of course, as a kid in the late 70s, I wanted Star Wars and Jaws and fun movies. I didn't watch any of this kind of stuff. But now as a grizzled old man, (laughs) I do kind of miss these acts of hubris from great filmmakers. Because one thing you can't say about Sorcerer is that it's not a really compellingly put together piece of film by a director who, while he might be smelling his own farts, he still was pretty formidable at his time. Like nobody's style is quite like his at this time. And it is, I think, an undeniably great piece of cinema. Yeah. Critics and audiences alike have come around to this movie and it it really is now seeing its audience and it's getting the respect that it it deserves now there's this passage in the uh the blu-ray it's an excerpt from william friedkin's book and he says what was it about this film that so alienated critics and turned off audiences a combination of things surely star wars which was pure fantasy with clearly defined heroes and villains had changed audiences' tastes. Sorcerer was presented as hard-edged reality. The four leads were fugitives from justice. The title was probably misleading. (laughs) And and the copy line from the director of The Exorcist didn't help. The ending was not only ambiguous, but a downer. The reviews were not only negative, but personal attacks probably deserved based on my callous, self-involved behavior. My sudden success in Hollywood after years of failure had convinced me that I was the center of the universe. Many were waiting for me to crash, and I obliged them in spades. 
my films became more obsessive, less audience friendly, and would turn even darker in the future. They would continue to portray the American character as psychotic, fearful, and dangerous. So what you should do is you should put on Sorcerer and then put on Star Wars A New Hope, the special edition with the added in Jabba the Hutt, and ask yourself which movie is better. All right, well, I'm going to go uh, rob a church and flee the country and uh, load some nitroglycerin into a truck and drive it through the jungle. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. (laughs) 